it's not always good being subject to a two-year amendment period because you might have an issue where you've identified an issue that goes back four years and you don't have the right to, by right, amend that assessment. Let's say an issue was reported three years ago and it's actually incorrectly not in your favour. That's how it's in the tax return. And now three years later, it's been identified that that's the case. Well, you don't have a right to challenge that. You might have an ability, but it will require a discretion to be exercised in order for that to be looked at. The commissioner is not obliged. The commissioner can turn around and say, well, I'm out of time, but you're also out of time. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 352 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to class for sponsoring this episode. Amendment periods determine how much time you have to fix a tax return. Within the amendment periods, you can still fix things and outside you can't unless the commissioner grants you an exemption. Depending on what the issue is, amendment periods can work against you, but they can also save you. So far, we have just said that the amendment period is usually two years for individuals and small or medium business and four years for large business and potential beneficiaries of a trust and also for passive income entities. But then Peter Glenderman sent an email. Peter Glenderman is the law interpretation officer of the ATO and Peter pointed out that there is a lot more to section 170 ITAA 36 than we made it look like, especially the reference to any other circumstances prescribed by the regulations. But let me read you the email Peter Glenderman sent. He writes, I note that in the discussion on amendment periods in this episode, and with this episode, Peter's referring to episode 323 with Andrew Henshaw, where we talked about forgotten Division 7A issues and how amendment periods can save you a lot of money. So Peter writes, I note that in the discussion on amendment periods in this episode, no comment was made about the any other circumstances prescribed by the regulations paragraph of items 1, 2 and 3 of the table in subsection 170-1 of the ITIA 36. That is, the 1936 Act regulations set out additional circumstances in which the two-year amendment period for an individual company or trust does not apply, so a four-year period applies instead. In this regard, item 2 of Regulation 14 is relevant for the example discussed in the episode of an individual taken to have received a dividend by Section 109D, i.e. the Commissioner would not need to rely on the trust beneficiary exception in order for a four-year amendment period to apply. End of quote. And Peter Glinderman is right. We didn't look at these other circumstances prescribed by the regulations. We didn't look at item two of Regulation 14. And this item of Regulation 14 is really important and we need to look at it. So that's what we will do in this episode. So today, let's dive into amendment periods because they are the gateway to everything when you have an unresolved issue in the past tax return. But before we start, please let me quickly walk you through section 170. It just helps to have looked at the section beforehand. If you are already familiar with section 170, please skip the next two minutes. Now, the first thing about section 170 is that this section has a lot of tables, a lot of content, a lot of references to other parts of the law, a lot of ifs and unless. So, tedious to work through, but let's have a go. 
Subsection 1 is the most important one for us. Section 170 has 14 subsections, but the most important one for us is subsection 1. That is where the music is. So this is where we will spend most of our time now, as well as in the interview with Andrew Henshaw. We will touch on the other 13, but let's focus on subsection 1. Subsection 1 consists of a table, one table, apart from three notes and a short introduction, just one table with two columns. The first column gives you the amendment period, and that is relatively straightforward. It just says the amendment period is two years, two years, four years, unlimited. That is straightforward. But then the second column gives you the exceptions qualifying what is in column one. And so this column is called qualification. And the wording in the second column is what makes this whole section so confusing because it uses double negatives, left, right, and center. And as you know, a double negative is a positive. So column one is the time of amendment and column two is the qualification. The table has six items and each item gets a time of amendment in column one and then a qualification in column two. Item number one is individuals. So you and I and all of us, we start with two years. Number two is small or medium business companies also starts with two years. Number three is small or medium business trusts also starts with two years. Number four is everybody else starting with four years. And then in number five, you have fraud or evasion, which as you know, is unlimited. And then number six is when there has been a court ruling or similar, then you also have an unlimited, or at least you have a extended to the time of this court ruling. So these are the six items in the table of section 171. And the first four items are called the limited amendment period. So individuals, small or medium business companies, small or medium business trusts, and everybody else. That is called the limited amendment period because it has a clear limited time frame, either two years or four years. Whereas with fraud or evasion or a lot of other things that come in the other subsections, yeah, you don't have such a clear time frame. So item number one, individuals. By far the biggest... Individuals usually have a two-year amendment period. And then comes the second column, the qualification, the exception, the double negative. And for item one, it isn't just one exception. It is six exceptions, A to F. And these six exceptions mean that some individuals don't have an amendment period of two years, but have one of four years or longer. And these individuals who have an extended amendment period are A, large sole traders, B, partners in large business partnerships. C, individual trustees. They're, they still stay with two years, but they move to item three. Anyway, confusing. And then D, individual beneficiaries of a passive income trust or a large business trust. And then E, an individual with a scheme. So think part 4a and then f and this is what peter glinnerman referred to f is any other circumstances prescribed by the regulations and so this now opens the door to item 2 of regulation 14 regulation 14 was issued in 2015 so it's relatively new given that section 170 sits in itaa 1936 so 1936 to 2015, we're talking almost 80 years. This Regulation 14 lists a number of circumstances where the amendment period is four years. And the most important one for us is in this context is Item 2. Item 2 is about Division 7A dividends. So Andrew Henshaw will cover this in detail in the following. So all of this was just Item 1, individuals. 
two-year amendment period unless one of the six exceptions applies. So now comes item two, small and medium business companies. Companies that run a small or medium business start with two years. And then there are five exceptions, A to E, which are very similar to the exceptions for individuals we just went through. So the amendment period for small and medium business companies is two years, except when the company is A, a partner in a large business partnership, B, a corporate trustee, C, a corporate beneficiary of a passive income trust or a large business trust, D, part for A, you know, entered a scheme, and then E, again, Mr. Glinderman, any other circumstances prescribed by the regulations. If any of these exceptions apply, the two-year period is out of the door. Then item number three, small or medium business trust. Again, small or medium trust start with two years unless there is an exception. Either A, a large partnership, B, large business trust or passive income trust, C, a scheme and D, any other circumstances prescribed by the regulations. And then number four, is everybody else. So if item one, two or three don't apply because an exception applies, for example, a qualification applies, then you get four years under item four. And as I mentioned, these four amendment periods are referred to as the limited amendment period because now we will come to unlimited amendment periods. Item number five is fraud or evasion. Unlimited, And then item number six is a court ruling. When there has been a court ruling, then of course the amendment period goes up to that court ruling. So that is section 170, subsection one in a nutshell. And this is where most of the music is. Subsection two basically just confirms what subsection one said. It just says that the commissioner can no longer amend if the limited amendment period in item one to four in subsection one, if that period has passed. But we basically already knew that. Subsection 1 already taught us that. Then subsection 3 and 4 are about the amendment of an already amended return. So if you amend a return and then you want to amend it again, then you need to go to subsection 3 and 4 of section 170. Subsection 5 says that if the taxpayer applies for an extension before the end of the limited amendment period, then the commissioner may extend the amendment period. So if you need more time, make sure you apply for an extension before the end of the amendment period. Then subsection 6 applies if you apply for a private ruling before the end of the limited amendment period and then the commissioner issues a private ruling after that, then you can still amend and that is per subsection 6. And then subsection 7 and 8 say if the ATO starts an investigation before the end of the limited amendment period and that investigation is not yet finished at the end of that period, then there are two ways per subsection 7 to extend the amendment period. Either the ATO can get a court order or the taxpayer can agree to an extension. And so, And this can happen several times per subsection 8. And then subsection 9 says that if the assessment is based on estimates, then the ATO can amend the tax return within four years of getting accurate figures. And then 9D says that if a contract is voided, then you can still amend the affected tax return. And then subsection 10, 10AA and 10AB lists a long list of items that have an unlimited 
amendment period and the most relevant one and the one that we also cover in this episode is the reimbursement agreement under section 100A. Then subsection 11 and 12 get really niche now regarding international tax. 13 seems to have disappeared and then 14 includes a long list of definitions. So that is section 170 ITAA 36 in a nutshell, just to give you a first feel for the topic. So here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne about amendment periods. We've previously on Tax Talks talked about what happens when a client has some Division 7A issues that have resulted in deemed dividends, but those deemed dividends have occurred quite some time ago. They may be more than two years ago, they may be more than four years ago. And what do you need to do and what can the commissioner do? And in particular, can the commissioner issue an assessment for those historical deemed dividends? Just to be clear, this is not an issue that applies only to Division 7A. This is an issue of general application in that any time there is a historical tax issue that may result in a tax shortfall for a historical year, is the commissioner within time to issue an assessment for that tax shortfall. It's about giving a sort of a principle of finality that that knowing when you can draw a close on a particular year, because then that, that impacts your need to keep records for that period as well. So it's important to know what that is. In general terms, an amendment period will, will be one of three things. It will either be two years from the date the commissioner has issued an assessment, four years from the date commissioner has issued an assessment or an unlimited period. Those are the general three options that that are available. In general, an unlimited amendment period will only apply where the commissioner is of the view that there has been fraud or evasion. I think it was with section 100A. When we discussed Section 100A, I think we had an unlimited amendment period there as well. Yeah. So what I was going to say was that there are other provisions that have an unlimited amendment period anyway, irrespective of whether the commissioner is of the view that there has been fraud or evasion. And one example is Section 100A. If you have a Section 100A issue, there is no amendment period, correct? Any Section 100A issue? Yeah. So... All the provisions are in section 170 of the 36 Act. And if you go to subsection 10, there's a table of all the provisions where the commissioner has an unlimited amendment period. And one of those items is section 100A. There's, There's various other provisions on there. None of them really come up that often for myself, but there, there is a list in subsection 10. So just looking at section 170, it starts with number one, and then it has a table. Then it starts with number two, number three. Okay, good. And then all the way to number 10, there's another table, and that lists everything. Okay. Do you mind if we just very quickly go through that, or do you think it will be too detailed? I think it's probably going to be too detailed because a lot of the provisions are not like they're so... You know, the first one's about income serving with an armed force under the control of the United Nations. It's, a, okay. it's, so, it's so specific. That it's... The first one that jumps out is item 17, section 100A. Yes. 
any present entitlement arising from a reimbursement agreement? That's really the probably the big one that, that most people see in practice. There, there's some ones about family trust distribution tax and uh, trustee beneficiary non-disclosure tax. And, and, and then there's a whole assortment of other less common provisions. But the big one is really Section 100A. But the point I wanted to make was that it's not only an unlimited amendment period if the, where the commissioner is of the view that there has been fraud or evasion. You need to work out what is the particular assessing provision and whether or not there might, there might be an unlimited amendment period anyway. So we have either two years, four years or an unlimited amendment period if there's fraud and evasion or a Section 100A issue or one of the other issues listed in subsection 10. Yep, correct, correct. So moving back to, well, am I a two-year amendment period or am I a four-year amendment period? This two-year amendment period was, was adopted in around about early 2005, I believe. This was brought in before that point in time. There wasn't such thing as a two-year amendment period. And the intention of the two-year amendment period was to provide a shorter period for those taxpayers that have less complicated affairs. So how does that work in practice? So if we go to the table, which is in subsection one of, of section 170, the first category that we, we, we come across is that it states the commissioner ha, uh, has two years to amend an assessment for an individual, but only if certain items do not apply. And I'll just explain each of those items. So, so you have a two-year amendment period for an individual if none of the following items apply. So the individual can't be carrying on a business, as in as a sole trader, unless that business is a, a small business entity or a medium business entity. Just to confirm, a medium business entity allows turnover of up to $50 million dollars. So it would be very unusual that an individual would be carrying on a business with more turnover than $50 million as a sole trader. The next one is about individual being a partner in a partnership. And there's another exclusion for partnerships that are small business entities or medium business entities. And this, this theme will continue throughout. Unless you're a business owner of a large business that has a turnover of over $50 million, your amendment period is two years. That's A and B. If an individual is a beneficiary of a trust estate, they may be subject to a four-year amendment period. However, if the trust itself is a small business entity or a medium business entity, then again, it will be back at two years. Now, there is a bit of nuance with this item because a trust might, might have a low amount of revenue or income but it might not be carrying on a business. So just because you have a trust that doesn't generate a lot of income doesn't necessarily mean that you're subject to that two-year amendment period because to be a small business entity or to be a medium business entity, the trust needs to be carrying on a business. And there's a real question mark where a trust owns passive assets, whether or not the trust is carrying on a business. Following C, it basically says if an individual is a trustee. Yes. Yep. Then the two-year period doesn't apply, but then it refers to item three. So then I go to item three and there it basically says 
if the trust is a small business or a medium business? If the trust is a small business entity or a medium business entity, it's going to be excluded again under that one. Good. So then we go back to two years, correct? Yeah. Good. So that means if the trust has passive income, then it's four years. If the trust is a small or medium business, then it's two years. If it's a large business, it's four years. Yeah, in, in essence, the dividing line between a trust that's carrying on a business and one that's not is obviously grey. So there's a, there's a bit of a question mark there because it, that impacts in turn whether the trust is a small business entity or a medium business entity, which then impacts whether or not the beneficiary of that trust has a two-year amendment period or a four-year amendment period. There's two further carve-outs. First, the first one is if it's reasonable to conclude that the person or that any person entered into a scheme with the sole or dominant purpose of obtaining a tax benefit or scheme benefit, which is similar to your sort of part for A considerations, then there's a carve out for any other circumstance prescribed by the regulations. And so that means F is basically referring to subsection 10, correct? F is referring to a set, a separate set of regulations to the Tax Act, not subsection 10. There's I a separate instrument which is regulations to the 36 act so this f is is more complicated and we have to come back to it so in summary the amendment period for an individual is two years unless they are connected with the business that is large or unless they are the trustee of a trust that only has passive income Yeah, well, it's 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 okay if they're a shareholder of a company, I should add as well. If they own, let's say, 50% of a company that had $100 million of turnover, that doesn't make the individual uh, subject to a four-year period. There's nothing about being a shareholder in a company in any of these. So Yes, good point. Yeah, if the individual is a sole trader, there's a partnership, there's a benef beneficiary of a trust estate, and those those entities are not themselves SBEs or MBEs, uh, if there's a part for A or a dominant purpose of getting a scheme benefit or if the regulations otherwise instruct. Just a question, maybe it's coming up later on, but in these discussions, there was always the talk about being a potential beneficiary of a trust so that your two-year amendment period changes to four years if you are the potential beneficiary of a trust. But that hasn't come up yet in the... Um, as far as we have looked yet, correct? Because as far as we have looked, it basically just talks about being a trustee. In subsection C, it says being a trustee. And then in D, it talks about being a beneficiary of a trust. But then if it's a small business or a medium business, then that doesn't apply either. So it's not really so much that you're a potential beneficiary of any trust. It really only is an issue if you're the potential beneficiary of trust with passive income, correct? Correct. This issue was talked about in the case of Yazbek and the Commissioner of Taxation from 2013. In that case, it was argued that this beneficiary of a trust provision should be read as being meaning a beneficiary who's, who has received a distribution. And what the federal court said was, no, that's not correct. It's sufficient to be a beneficiary of a trust, regardless of whether you get any benefit from that trust. The important point is that the trust must not be an SBA or an MBA, because if it is, then it doesn't matter that you're a beneficiary of it. So as long as your trust is small or medium, you're fine. You still are down to two years. If your trust 
has only passive income, then you're up to four years. Or if your business is large, then you're up to four years. But in general, most of us would have a two-year amendment period. Yeah, well, it's difficult. I mean, uh, there's lots of trusts out there that don't do a lot or they're sitting dormant or maybe they have one investment property and they have a very large class of beneficiaries. You know, those sort of situations, you would be a beneficiary of a trust that's not an SBE or an MBE. So um, it really just depends on individual circumstances. Yeah. So, so for a lot of us, there is the remote chance that we are a potential beneficiary, not an actual beneficiary, but a potential beneficiary of a passive income trust or a dormant trust that would then pump us up to four years. Yeah, correct. Correct. Then the issue becomes, well, you know, how do you know about it and all, all of those things, which, um, which are a separate, separate issue. Good. Okay, good. And then this last point under F, where it talks about any other circumstances, you already touched on it. But because the same wording is then again, in for the company, we discuss this later, you first cover the company now, and then we talk about the any other circumstances later, correct? Yeah, correct. So, so that was individuals, the principles for a trust and a company are very similar to that of the individual. So Companies, again, will have a two-year amendment period. If they're a small business entity or a medium business entity, subject to similar carve-outs about, well, if they're a beneficiary of a trust that's not one of those things, or there's a scheme with a, with a dominant purpose, the same sort of considerations. And a trust has the same thing again. So if the trust is an SBE or an MBE, again, it will have a two-year amendment period. Now, of course, this is all subject to the commission, as I said earlier, the commissioner, if, if he or she is of the opinion that there has been fraud or evasion and forms that view, then there is an unlimited amendment period. Is now the, a good time to talk about these, any other circumstances prescribed by the regulations? Yep. So the final carve out to the two-year amendment period is in any other circumstances prescribed by regulations. And when you see provisions like this, it's really important not to overlook those regulations and to go actually find them, bring them up, read them, consider whether or not any of those apply. So the, the regulations are a separate instrument and they provide for other, other circumstances in which two-year amendment period does not apply. There's a variety of situations that are covered. I'll only talk about a few of them. In the context of Division 7A, there is a particular regulation that concerns that. And what this regulation is getting at is situations where the private company itself has a four-year amendment period, but the individual or the trust has a two-year amendment period or would otherwise have a two-year amendment period. I see. That's interesting because, yes, of course, with Division 7A or with missing trust distributions, if the trustee is an individual, the amendment period of the individual tax return is the relevant one, not the uh, amendment period of the company or trust. But that now means that this regulation brings the company amendment period also into the game. Yeah, correct. So what it what it try what it does is is this this regulation, which is item two, says that in situations where a private company is deemed to 
pay a dividend uh, uh, because it makes a payment or a loan or debt forgiveness. And the company is subject to a four-year amendment period, while the individual will also be subject to a four-year amendment period. That seems to make sense because if there's a four-year amendment period for the company, well, there should be a four-year amendment period for the individual. Yes, that makes sense. But the company would only have a four-year amendment period if it has a turnover of over $50 million. So for most small companies... not many private companies. Yeah, there's not many private companies that have turnover of more than $50 million. Exactly. There are some, of course, but the most will fall will be an SBA or an MBA unless, again, they're a beneficiary of a trust that doesn't meet those criteria. Yes, and a company that has a turnover of 50 million most likely also has, has a wider range of shareholders, etc. So then you probably don't have a Division 7A issue anyway, because the withdrawing of funds is a lot more regulated than when you just have one shareholder and he kind of takes money out as he goes. This almost never comes up in practice, because almost all private companies would be below that threshold. So practice this is unlikely to, to arise for almost all Division 7A issues with private companies simply because a lot of the times the, the turnovers will be, low, be below that 50 million threshold. But it is worth considering. It's also worth noting that the 50 million is an aggregated turnover as well. It's not just the turnover of that entity. So is that the only other circumstance prescribed by the regulation? So is there something else that we should know that is highly relevant? There's a number of different circumstances. A lot of them are not relevant. There's, there's really only two that are probably worth bringing to your attention. The first one is if you have a transaction between two parties that are associates and the parties are not dealing at arm's length and one of them has a four-year amendment period, then the other one will have a four-year amendment period. So this is similar to the Division 7A issue we just talked about. If you've got a transaction between a two-year and a four-year and they're related and they're not dealing at arm's length, then they're both going to have four-year amendment period, which, again, makes sense. There's a number of other provisions that automatically have a four-year amendment period under this regulation. An example of those are Section 70, 177E, which is about um, stripping of dividends and section 45A and 45B, which are regarding essentially schemes to create capital benefits. So this is again, a situation where you need to consider what assessing provision you're talking about and making sure that it's not covered by a regulation. Can you just quickly tell me section 77E, dividend stripping, Yeah, what is dividend stripping? Dividend stripping is any sort of, it, it, this, is, this is contained within Part 4A, and this is a schemes where the purpose is to, to obtain an imputation benefit. For example, you have a company, mum and dad is the ordinary shareholders, and you issue a dividend access share to the children, for example, because you want to split profits with them. Something like that might be a, a dividend stripping scheme because you're taking the dividends away from the existing ordinary shareholders to someone else. So that's just a simple example of what could be a dividend stripping arrangement. 
Oh, I see. That takes me by surprise because you can only pay dividends to shareholders. Yeah, so dividend stripping is when you pay dividends to somebody else than shareholders. How, how is that possible? No, sorry. What, 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 what happens under those type of arrangements is a special class of dividends are issued and then a dividend is paid on that special class of shares. So simple situation, mum and dad own all of the ordinary shares company resolves to issue a special class of share to let's say an adult child for example who doesn't pay anything for that share and the company can at its discretion decide to pay dividends on that special share to the new shareholder in preference to the existing ordinary shareholders. So dividend stripping is basically when you have more than one class of shares and then a particular class of shares is held by people on a different tax bracket and then you only pay dividends to that class of shares so that you use this lower tax bracket, correct? Yeah, it's related to the other Part 4A provisions, but it's getting at particular arrangements. When you do this, then you also have a four-year amendment period. Yep, yep. Okay, I'm surprised that it's four years and not unlimited because Part 4A is coming in with that. Well, Part 4A is not an unlimited amendment period either. It should be made clear. If you enter into a scheme that has the sole or dominant purpose of enabling someone to have a tax benefit, you have a four-year amendment period. You oh, really? You have an unlimited amendment period for Part 4A, no. I see. Only fraud and evasion has unlimited. Any other part for A is four years. Yes. Section 100A is unlimited and there are other various provisions that are unlimited, but part for A is not one of those. Just for a bit of history, before 2005, it was a six-year period of review for the anti-avoidance provisions. And at that point, they re it was reduced from a six-year period to a four-year period. So I know we've talked at length about Section 100A previously, but again, the point is 100A has an unlimited amendment period. Part 4A does not have an unlimited amendment period. Looking at Section 170, just to see where we are at now, we covered number one, which is basically an individual has a two-year amendment period unless it is the beneficiary of a passive income trust or it is the sole trader, partner or trustee of a large business. Then in number two, we had the company, which is basically the same two-year amendment period unless the company is large. And then, of course, each of those always has a reference to part 4A. And then also each of those has a reference to any other circumstance prescribed by the regulations, which we just discussed. The really interesting thing and, and the, the thing that how this has changed over time is is go back to my earlier comment that the two-year amendment period was intended for taxpayers with relatively simple affairs. And at that point, I believe it was limited just to small business entities. And I believe at that point, it was based on a $2 million turnover threshold as well. So we've gone from a $2 million turnover threshold to a $50 million turnover threshold. Obviously, that greatly changes the net of people included. And also you could conceivably have pretty large complicated groups that are covered by a two-year amendment period rather than a four-year amendment period. 
Fair point. So coming back to section 170, we covered number one, two, and three under subsection one in the table. Then now number four. Yeah, so item four just says if you don't fall into one, two, or three, you've got a four-year amendment period. Item five says if the commissioners of the opinion that there's fraud or evasion, it's unlimited. And item six talks about the commissioner's ability to amend an assessment to give an effect to uh, a court decision or as a result of an objection. Yeah, that surprises me that it says at any time. It can't be a, a different court decision and then the ATO can't go back and change all the other tax returns. It has to be a court decision about something that is in this particular tax return, correct? Correct. So, so for example, a tax dispute may run for years. The amended assessment may be issued, let's say, three years after the event. And then the litigation takes another three years, for example, then, and it goes, let's say it goes all the way to the high court to, to give effect to that, the commissioner can issue an assessment. That was the table in subsection one, number one to six. And then the other subsections are not so relevant or should we cover them? They're not particularly relevant. I think those are the general principles. The other point is that it's not always good being part subject to a two-year amendment period because you might have an issue where you've identified an issue that goes back four years. You don't have the right to, by right, amend that assessment. Let's say an issue was reported three years ago and it's actually incorrectly not in your favour. That's how it's in the tax return. And now three years later, it's been identified that that's the case. Well, you don't have a right to challenge that you might have an ability but it will require a discretion to be exercised in order for that to be looked at the commissioner is not obliged the commissioner can turn around and say well i'm out of time but you're also out of time yeah that's a very good point the two-year amendment period can work in your favor but it can also work against you welcome back so item 2, Regulation 14, changes everything. When you have a forgotten Division 7A issue, it changes the amendment period for the individual that was meant to recognize the deemed Division 7A dividend per Section 109D. It changes the amendment for that individual to four years. That is a big thing when you get a new client with massive Division 7A loans that haven't been dealt yet before. During the interview, I forgot to ask Andrew about late lodgements. Is the amendment period affected by whether a return is lodged on time or late? So let's say the due date is the 26th of May 2023 and the return is lodged on the 1st of January 2024. When does the amendment period start? The date the return was due or the date the return was actually lodged? And so I emailed Andrew and he wrote back and said the amendment period starts on the day after the return is lodged. And when you think about it, of course, that is the only thing that would make sense. If the due date was relevant, then you could shorten an amendment period by lodging late. You don't lodge for four years and then lodge for getting a huge chunk of Division 7A loans and, oh, sorry, the amendment period has passed. So that would make no sense. So the only thing that makes sense is that the amendment period starts the day after you lodge. In his email, Andrew points out that for other things, the due date does matter. He writes, yes, lodgement date matters for some other things, for example, Division 7A and whether a complying loan agreement has been put in place. 
End of quote. And Yes, of course, for Division 7A, you need to have fixed the Division 7A problem by the time the return is due or lodged, whatever is earlier. Otherwise, you could postpone a Division 7A issue for years by not lodging for years. So, for the start of the amendment period, the due date doesn't matter in the slightest. The amendment period starts the day after you lodge, no matter how late or early that is. In the next episode, episode 353, let's talk about distributable surplus. As you know, you only need to recognize a deemed Division 7A dividend if you have a distributable surplus. If you don't, no deemed dividend. But how do you calculate this thing? Do you include share premium reserves, for example? Do you include capital profit reserves? Can you just take, to make it simple, can you just take current profits plus retained earnings? This is what Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will discuss with you in the next episode about distributable surplus. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Bye.